This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. The United States and our NATO allies viewing China increasingly as an economic and security threat, with warnings to Beijing on the possibility of tougher Western measures. Just ahead, we take a closer look at the strained relations between two of the world's largest economies, our conversation with Dr. Tara Oh. She is an expert on the region, an adjunct fellow at the Hudson Institute, and a U.S. Air Force veteran. Now, China is home to an estimated 1.4 billion residents, while the Biden administration says there is room for our two countries to work together on common issues like climate change and the coronavirus pandemic. In other key strategic areas, there remains a growing gap. Here's the president. We'll also take on directly the challenges posed by our prosperity, security, and democratic values by our most serious competitor, China. We'll confront China's economic abuses, counter its aggressive, coercive action to push back on China's attack on human rights, intellectual property, and global governance. But we are ready to work with Beijing when it's in America's interest to do so. And there is another trouble spot in Asia for President Biden. It came up in his recent news conference. That's North Korea's ongoing nuclear missile development, a series of short-range tests being viewed as a direct challenge to the United States. Tara Oh also commented on another ongoing question, whether North and South Korea will ever be unified. You know, I used to say that, yes, I see unified Korea at some point, maybe in my lifetime. Uh, but that's um, when I used to think that a unified Korea would look more like uh, South Korea, liberal democracy, market economy, capitalism, where people have freedom and prosperity. That's what, and I think that's what most people think when we talk about unified Korea. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, North Korea's goal is to unify Korea under its system of human rights violations and no individual freedom. Uh, and it may sound absurd that North Korea would even consider that as a goal, but it has been its goal for decades. More of our conversation just ahead. But first, some background on America's policy towards China. The Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, choosing Asia as his first overseas trip. And during his remarks in Seoul, South Korea, he spoke about the China challenge. We're united uh, in the vision of a free and open Indo-Pacific region where countries follow the rules, cooperate whenever they can and resolve their differences peacefully. And in particular, we will push back if necessary when China uses coercion or aggression to get its way. That from Secretary of State Tony Blinken. He was in South Korea earlier in March. And joining us on the phone is Dr. Tara Oh. She is an adjunct fellow at the Hudson Institute. Let me begin with the state of relations between the U.S. and China in particular. How would you assess them? Well, I think um, we have been talking about China being a rising power, but I think it's gone beyond that. Um, China is actually challenging um, U.S. power and the uh, global order uh, that we have. And so obviously it's going to be, um, I would say, more confrontational. And that's what we have seen in the past, um, in, not just uh, in national security realm, but also in economic realm as well. Why more confrontational? What's the reasoning behind that? Um, well, U.S. is an established power, and China is <clears throat> trying to replace the United States 
it's why if you look at China's goal, um, China driven by the one party, uh, Chinese Communist Party, um, their goal is not just um, existing side by side with the United States, but it really wants to dominate. And it has shown itself that that's what it wants to do. Um, starting out with the region, of course, you know, in South uh, China Sea, where they built the uh, military base on the islands, um, and the way it deals with its neighbors such as South Korea uh, and other countries when um, they don't do things that China likes. Um, so that's what we have seen. Um, I think even recently as the, uh, the meeting in Alaska, China sort of began uh, with a long diatribe, and it really went beyond the uh, diplomatic protocol. They were supposed to talk for two minutes each, and it went way beyond that. And you sort of have to ask yourself, why are they uh, making their messages so clear? To the point regarding the military confrontation or potential confrontations between the U.S., our allies, and China, this is what Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said also in South Korea. China is a pacing challenge for the Department of Defense. And we know that competing in today's shifting global dynamics can only be done through the spirit of teamwork and cooperation. So what do Americans need to know about that threat? How real is it? Oh, I, it is very real. China's threat is very real. Um, you know, he mentioned the word cooperation uh, and teamwork. China mentions the word cooperation as well. But when China mentions the word cooperation, it really means getting its way. Um, it often says, well, U.S. needs to cooperate with us. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to um, give up any portion of what they want to do. They want the United States to basically follow and um, accede to Chinese demands. So I think we have to be very careful about interpreting the word. Um, when we use the word, we mean one thing. When they use it, it means something else. And we have to be mindful of that. And it's actually called uh, um, terminology confusion tactics. Um, and China has been very uh, adept in using that. So what does that tell you about the leadership of China, their goals, the end games that they may have? Their goal, um, well, their goals, well, at least one of them, has always been for the Chinese Communist Party to dominate. And, of course, it dominates within China itself, within the state of China. But it wants to expand that beyond its borders. Um, and we've seen that because um, they have what's called United Front Tactics Department. And basically their goal is to try to um, influence other countries around the world, but in a, in a basically more uh, subsur- subversive way. Uh, they have done that in Australia, New Zealand, uh, United States, and, and European countries, and South Korea, where I do a lot of my research as well. And, you know, they do that with, let's say, in, in the academic world, they do that with the Confucian uh, Institutes to spread uh, their communist ideology. It's really not about learning about Confucian at all. Actually, they criticize Confu- Confucius. Um, so they are trying to um, not only uh, spread their ideology, of communism, but they also want to make sure that the people who are influenced by that do not uh, attack or criticize the um, CCP, Chinese Communist Party, and, and Chinese government. In dealing with Xi Jinping, what was the approach of the Trump administration, and what's changed under the Biden administration? 
Um, I think it's too early to tell uh, in terms of what has changed, but China has been acting aggressively, aggressively towards its neighbors and some other countries. And I think there's a way to behave uh, if both sides are on the same, both sides have the same values, such as open society, freedom, individual freedom, and things like that. Um, then you deal with that partner country in a certain way. But if you're dealing with a country uh, led by this, you know, one party um, that doesn't share the same shared values, fundamental values of, you know, individual freedom, human rights, uh, and such, then um, you have to sort of behave differently with them. And with China's case, um, if you accommodate, if you cooperate, if you, in how, how we define cooperation, uh, if that's what we do, they sort of interpret that as weakness and they push even further. Um, now, if, we, if they get pushed back when they're aggressive, then they back off. So I think that's something that we have to remember when we're dealing with CCP China. And as you frame the argument, it's both uh, a military challenge and an economic challenge. So let me go back to what President Biden said during his first visit to the Pentagon. He explained his strategy, the U.S. strategy, towards China. Today, I was briefed on a new uh, DOD-wide China task force that Secretary Austin is standing up to look at our strategy and operational concepts, technology and force posture, and so much more. The task force will work quickly, drawing on civilian and military experts across the department to provide, within the next few months, recommendations to Senator Austin on key priorities and decision points so that we can chart a strong path forward on China-related matters. In charting that path forward, Dr. O, what advice would you give the president and his senior team? Um, I would say, um, I mean, of course, they'll have to do the study and it needs to come out before um, uh, we can assess that. But um, I think we have to remember the fundamental nature of uh, who we are dealing with. And I know we tend to look at um, China as a nation state. I mean, it is. But we also have to recognize the driving force behind that nation state, which is Chinese Communist Party. And if you look at um, the history of what that party has done, um, then I think it'll give a better sense of how we should, um, you know, what kind of policies we should apply. Um, Now, when I say, you know, look at the fundamental nature, um, it actually goes back to Sun Tzu. We can actually learn something from Sun Tzu. And Sun Tzu said, know your enemy, know yourself. Um, and this really goes back to knowing, and I don't want, necessarily want to say enemy. I can replace that with know your opponent or know your you know, challenger. Um, and that's something that we really have to understand because if we don't understand that portion right, then everything else uh, really won't matter because it will not address the fundamental issue, uh, which is the Communist Party and um, its uh, its tendencies and its goals. So take us into Beijing. Who are China's enemies or opponents? Where do they see the threat? You know, I read somewhere recently that the Beijing sees the U.S. as a threat. Um, it's not because we are uh, aggressive. Um, it's just the existence of the United States because China, uh, I don't want to say CCP-based uh, China, 
um, it is a different world order than we do. You know, we have differences in the way that we view human rights, um, about individual freedom, uh, about government's roles, and and uh, you know, China wants to impose its version of of world order. So I, I think that is something that um, we have to uh, recognize and. And again, it's not it's not anything that we are doing. I mean, even if we don't do anything, they will look at our very existence as a threat. In terms of the naval war games that have been taking place uh, outside of China, who else can stand up to the country besides the U.S.? Uh, I think this is when we have to form a coalition of allies and friends, um, because you know, United States we're powerful, but uh, we still need um the help with of our our friends and allies so uh in the region we have australia we have new zealand we have japan south korea uh india of course uh, sorry to, uh, that's a major power there so i i think um um and then you know with the quad uh we already have some you know for you know of the countries involved and i think we need to expand that beyond beyond the quad um to uh to stand up against, um, you know, threats that emanate from China. So let's turn from the military threat to the economic threat that we're facing. Back in February, in one of his first Oval Office remarks, President Biden had this to say about his conversations with the Chinese leader and the threat the U.S. is currently facing from that country. Last night, I was was on the phone for two straight hours with Xi Jinping. And... uh, you all know as well as I do. These folks, uh, and it was a good conversation. I know him well. We spent a lot of time together over the uh, uh, over the years I was vice president. And uh, but uh, you know they're gonna. If we don't get moving. They're gonna eat our lunch. Uh, they have a major, major new in- initiatives on rail, and they already have rail that goes 225 miles an hour. With, with ease, they're working. They're working very hard to do what I think we're going to have to do. And I think the uh, automobile industry is already there, and so is labor. They're going to. They're working very hard to try to move in a position where they end up being the, the source of uh, of uh, a new way in which to power automobiles. Uh, <laughs> um, which would they're, they're going to invest a lot of money. They're investing billions of dollars in dealing with a whole range of issues that relate to transportation, the environment, and a whole range of other things. So we just have to step up. That from President Biden in February in the Oval Office. And Dr. Mm-hmm. Taro, oh, this comes after the president and Congress passing a nearly $2 trillion COVID relief bill and word of an infrastructure plan that could total as much as $3 trillion. More details on that expected to come as late as uh, May or early June. But as you hear that from the president... What does the U.S. need to do? And the other question is, how do we pay for it? Because we have so much debt. We're so reliant on China. <laughs> how do we pay for it? I think that's a very good question. And that is a um, question that has not been answered. Um, so I think we need to have a public discussion of, about that issue first uh, before any bills are passed. Um, but let me go back to uh, the economic challenges of, of China um, I know that, um, you know, last year and the year before, um, Huawei uh, was 
um, singled out as an example of the danger to the United States uh, in national security as well as on the economic front um, because it uses China uses technology to um, sort of uh, place back doors um, back door on the on various uh, equipment communications infrastructure and equipment um, to uh, basically get our data get our uh, information and um, I think that's one of the areas that we have to keep up and not relent um, because it has not just because the uh, administration changed doesn't mean that the threat has changed. And um, let me get more specific on this, because since I focus on China, um, Huawei is involved in 5G technology around the globe. And we have encouraged our allies and friends to not use Huawei equipment for 5G infrastructure. Um, now, let me talk about Samsung. Samsung is the 16th largest company in the world. And, of course, you know, a lot of us have Samsung phones and such. Um, Samsung actually has the largest number of 5G um, uh, patents in the world. Now, certain policies within South Korea right now has put Samsung in a very dangerous situation um, in which uh, China potentially could have a big um, voting rights, uh, you know, buy up the stocks and uh, have voting rights management decisions. Uh, and if that happens, Samsung's advanced technology uh, can be transferred over to Huawei, um, because uh, not, not just Huawei, but to uh, China. Um, and that's very dangerous because um, it, right now, China doesn't have those advanced chip manufacturing capability. Um, but if they get a hold of Samsung's technology, which they have in the past, um, um, then then it, it really could, could pose even greater threat because it'll have this advanced technology that that it uh, it needs, but it doesn't have. So that's something that we have to work with our allies to make sure that that something like that doesn't occur. And that's exactly the issue that came up during her confirmation hearing as the new Commerce Secretary, Gina Raimondo, the former Rhode Island governor, and this line of questioning from Texas Senator Ted Cruz. Well, as you noted, the Department of Commerce maintains the entity list, which is foreign parties that engage in activities contrary to U.S. national security. And in 2019, I led an effort to add to that list companies the Chinese Communist Party has used to carry out their surveillance campaigns of Uyghurs and, and, and other oppressive activities. And I introduced legislation mandating that, that some of those companies be listed, the Tiananmen Act. And in the fall of 2019 and in 2020, the Trump administration did so, adding batches of Chinese technology companies to the entities list. Can you commit, if confirmed, that those companies will remain on the BIS entities list? Uh. I will come into working with you on that, and I certainly agree with you that the entities list is a powerful tool in the Commerce Secretary's toolkit to shore up American national security. Well, let me ask about Huawei in particular. Can you commit that Huawei will remain on the list? I will commit that once, uh, should I be confirmed and I am there, I will review the policy, consult with you, consult with industry, consult with our allies, um, and make an assessment as to what's best for American national and economic security. Well, I will say there's chatter in Washington that the Biden administration is contemplating going 
easy on China and removing companies from the entities list. I certainly hope that does not happen because I think that would be profoundly contrary to the national security interest of the United States. That's from Senator Ted Cruz in the confirmation hearing of the Commerce Mm -hmm. Secretary. So cut through all of that and explain what's going on. Well, I also hope that the entity list is not shortened, um, and I hope that Huawei does not come off that list because there are plenty of evidence, plenty of reports about its danger, its threat to our national security. Um, Of course, our national security and as well as our allies and friends. Um, So I think, and you know, with all the cyber uh, threats and cyber uh, theft of information, um, we really need to give this a high priority and um, not back down when it comes to the entity list. Um, But it really goes back to um, us really emphasizing our main values, and that is of human rights, of freedom of speech and the press, assembly, religion, the rule of law. These are the values that, that, um, that we need to stand up for. And if Beijing want us to compromise any of these, we should not back down. Um, and so once we know what, what our values and principles are, once that is firm, um, then then that's what we need to stand by. Because all of that, all those values are what's important for our national security as well as our way of life. And that's what we are trying to defend. One final question regarding China, because then I want to turn to your expertise regarding North Korea. But a lot of debate in terms of whether or not uh, the West should participate in the Olympic Games scheduled for Beijing in the summer of next year. Should we? Yeah, so I think that's something that we need to take into consideration. Um, I know that there are various tools, multiple tools at government's disposal, um, and that is one of them. Uh, Hopefully we can find some other tools uh, to use. But what we need to emphasize in the end is to um, stand up for uh, the values that we treasure. And when it comes to human rights abuses, towards Uyghurs, uh, and, and also Tibet as well, and Tibetans in Tibet. Uh, we really need to stand up for the, the voices that cannot be heard. We are talking with Dr. Tara Oh. She is also the author of the book, The Collapse of North Korea, Challenges, Planning, and Geopolitics of Unification. I want to go back to March of 2017. He is now the Secretary of State, but then he was former Deputy Secretary of State, leaving the Obama administration and speaking at Johns Hopkins University. This is what Tony Blinken said in March of 2017 about Kim Jong-un and North Korea. As we looked at this, um, we did not find a quick military fix to the challenge posed by North Korea. As many of you know, North Korea's nuclear missile complex is concealed underground, inside mountains, sometimes in places unknown to our intelligence. Meanwhile, one area where the country is making rapid progress is with mobile missiles powered by solid fuel that can be hidden, rolled out, and prepared for launch within a matter of minutes. Even if we had an effective preemptive strike capacity, the consequences of using it could be prohibitive. Pyongyang possesses thousands of artillery pieces, rockets, just 30 miles from Seoul. One retaliatory salvo could decimate South Korea's capital. So, where does that leave us? 
ultimately leaves us with some kind of negotiated settlement that, at least in my judgment, first freezes and then rolls back North Korea's nuclear program with inspectors to carefully scrutinize compliance, much as we did with Iran. That from four years ago and Dr. Tara Oh, he is now the Secretary of State. So what challenges does he face, do we face, from North Korea? Well, North Korea's challenge has remained rather consistent. Um, of course, nuclear component was added later on. And, uh, you know, he, he did focus on the danger of not only not knowing about all the nuclear complexes, I mean, he has many, um, but about the mobile missiles. Um, that is a relative new threat because of the reduced time um, that um, that we have. So, so those challenges um, have been persistent for some time now. Um, but again, uh, you know, when I talked about the CCP in China, we have to understand their true nature. So we have to understand the true nature of the Workers' Party of North Korea and Kim Jong-un. So any, like any dictators, um, they're actually worried about their people first. Um, it sounds ironic because they suppress their people uh, so they can't fight back or even um, you know, complain about the, about the government. But, but it is true that they are focused on, um, or their fear is, is their own people. Why? Because they're the ones who can unseat their power. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons why they keep information out of North Korea, Western information or outside information. And as a result, they um, punish people for, say, watching South Korean drama um, because, again, they can get information about South Korea that way. Um, because once, once, if they see that and they see such drastic difference between South Korea and North Korea, um, it's going to influence people's minds. And so... Uh, so in that sense, they are. They also look at South Korea, the existence of South Korea as a threat, because it's an alternative system that their people would pre- prefer. Um, so while we need to focus on the nuclear weapons threat, it's for North Korea, that is a means to an end. Um, and what I mean by that is its, it's goal is to unify Korea under its rule, um, get rid of South Korea, the alternate system, that um, that its population would prefer. So to that end, um, they're using nuclear weapons as a as a the, the threat of nuclear weapons um, to try to get what it wants, um, which means that it's not going to get rid of its nuclear weapons. Um, I know that we've had a lot of denuclearization talks, but even with even with that, North Korea talked about or actually, I don't want to say North Korea, but it was actually South Korean government sort of, um, you know, came to the United States and said North Korea is committed to denuclearization of Korean Peninsula. And this is when we have to realize the difference between denuclearization of Korean Peninsula versus denuclearization of North Korea. Because that's the leverage that Kim Jong-un has, correct? Yes, yes. It is leverage that it has. And it requires requires tremendous sacrifice from its people because North Korea... Um, basically used, prioritizes resources towards developing nuclear weapons, and people suffer, people die, people starve to death. So, so they have to justify their, the, all that um, uh, sacrifice by saying, we have this nuclear weapons, we are a major power, uh, 
And so he can't really back down from it. He can't back down from that for you know several reasons. But one, one, because it wants to use that as a leverage towards South Korea for its goals. And second, it doesn't want to, it cannot back down from that for its own domestic population. Because they're going to ask, what, what was all that sacrifice for? Well, then let me conclude with this question, and we have covered you often on the C-SPAN networks, but for the purposes of our audience, as somebody who understands the Korean Peninsula probably better than anyone else, can you envision a unified North and South Korea? And if so, when? (laughs) You know, when is always a good question. Um, You know, I used to say that, yes, I see unified Korea at some point, maybe in my lifetime. Uh, But that's um, when I used to think that a unified Korea would look more like uh, South Korea, liberal democracy, market economy, capitalism, where people have freedom and prosperity. That's what, and I think that's what most people think when we talk about unified Korea. Um, But as I mentioned earlier, North Korea's goal is to unify Korea under its system of human rights violations and no individual freedom. Uh, And it may sound absurd that North Korea would even consider that as a goal, but it has been its goal for decades, and it has let um, you know let it be publicly known through various of this public uh, you know releases and um, meeting notes and uh, uh, KCNA and other reports through through its mouth, official mouthpieces. So it's not it's not something that is new or unusual. It's just that I think a lot of analysts outside of North Korea don't really pay attention to that anymore. We discount it because South Korea is wealthier and uh, it has um, fancier weapons. Um, But we cannot forget uh, that they have other tools. Um, Maybe maybe they don't have the most advanced jets, but they have other tools such as uh, world's largest special ops. Also, there's the version department, the United Front uh, Department is very active. And they have made um, really significant progress in within South Korea. If you look at a lot of the um, current politicians and um, the officials in the government right now in the Moon administration, many of them in the 80s uh, used to be student activists who used to praise and uh, embrace North Korea's Juche ideology. And many of them have not changed. And if you look at some of the bills that they have been passing lately, uh, such as criminalizing sending leaflets uh, that defectors sent to North Korea, um, they have passed that bill to criminalize freedom of speech of defectors of now South Korean citizens. They cannot send leaflets to North Korea, and if they do, it's, it's now a crime punishable by three years in jail. So they have passed numerous bills like that that favors North Korea. So. Um, we really have to take, uh, we have to go back to North Korea and understanding the true nature of the North Korean regime. Our guest is a retired U.S. Air Force officer serving as an adjunct fellow at the Hudson Institute, also the author of the book, The Collapse of North Korea, Challenges, Planning, and Geopolitics of Unification. Dr. Tara Oh, we thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. And a reminder, this podcast, The Weekly, it's available wherever you subscribe to your favorite podcast. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And follow us on Twitter at C-SPAN Radio. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. We thank you for listening.